Welcome back. My name is Joel, and we have teaching from the Bible each week here at Emmanuel. Um, we've been doing uh, some messages since Christmas on the the kind of core values, the things that um, that make us who we are as a church, some of our, our DNA. And uh, last week, Stephen Dawson um, talked about the concept of team as a value, play as team. And uh, I'm going to carry that on today, but directly apply it to uh, the one of the most important examples of unity with diversity, people joining together to contribute to one thing, but with different uh, things that they bring. Um, and, uh, and that's what I want to talk about. And the way in which this works out in family life, according to the Bible, as well as to some extent in church life, is in the male-female relationship. So I want to give some time today to this. Uh, it is an important part of what the Bible teaches, and it's something that we need to think straight about. As a church, we have uh, committed ourselves to, I suppose, what you could call complementarianism. That's one of the labels that this uh, teaching that we believe is from the Bible goes by. And you could summarize complementarianism uh, with a very simple uh, statement, men and women are equal, and men and women are also different. Men and women are equal, men and women are also different. I suppose that different cultures through history have tended to emphasize one or the other of those, and yet both are biblical. Both need to be held at the same time and guarded. And as a church, we've tried to do that. Uh, not always successfully, I'm sure, and it's definitely a very bumpy road sometimes trying to apply this teaching from the Bible, and yet we've made it our, our kind of target to try and stay true to both these emphases that we see in Scripture. Men and women are equal and yet different. And so I want to use a, a place in Scripture that actually starts this theme off from the very first page of your Bible. So if you've got your Bible with you, we'll go from Genesis 1. This is by no means the only part of the Bible that teaches on this. If I wanted to, if I had time, uh, we would pick out huge, huge, huge amounts of Scripture to emphasize this. But I'm just going to kick us off with a, a few verses. And what I'm trying to clarify for some is actually one of the key questions that people will tend to ask us who are amongst us. Sometimes people who are finding out about Emmanuel and looking in and perhaps wondering whether to become members even will be curious about uh, the model of leadership that we have here. Uh, for example, that uh, we have uh, a certain office of leadership, which we call eldership, elders, which we see as a teaching in the Bible, that there are elders in every church. We see that in the Bible, elders are male. And so we've actually kept to that principle and said, well, actually, in this church, all elders are male, which practically means, in terms of what that looks like, it, for example, means that the the Sunday preaching will be done by men. It would be exceptional if that were not the case. Uh, and that's, a, that's definitely a surprise and, and a little controversial for sure, certainly controversial uh, in a city like Brighton. One, one thing it's worth saying before I get into this scripture, 
we are talking about something different than leadership as such. Uh, leadership is something that in this church men and women practice together. Uh, there are women and men leading in all kinds of different contexts in this church. And that's something we're glad for and want to encourage more and more and more. Uh, we're not surprised when women are more gifted than men. That, that doesn't shock us. Uh, we, we're sort of sometimes probably caricatured as living in a strange prehistoric age uh, when we don't imagine that there's ever been such thing as a gifted leading woman. Very aware of that. I'm actually married to a very gifted leading woman. And, uh, and in this church, we are very positive about that indeed. If we were to do you know, some kind of sample of the 10 or 20 most gifted people across all of the sites and all the services in Emmanuel, from Shoreham to, to East Brighton, I'm sure that the top 10 would include lots of men, lots of women. I don't know how it would be split, but it wouldn't be surprising to me whichever way it went. But when we talk about eldership, we are talking about, I suppose one metaphor which we'll come back to is the, is the metaphor of fatherhood. There's a kind of leadership that, that we see nevertheless as something that has something to do uh, with the way God's made us even biologically. And uh, I want us to look at that today. So let's read. I'm going to read from Genesis 1 and then a little bit from chapter 2. But let me read you a couple of verses. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Uh, flip over to chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. Now, just to help you, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 overlap. They tell parts of the same story, but they tell it from different angles. So this will sound repetitive, but it's just showing it from a different uh, perspective. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So uh, this is, as I said earlier, taught today because people will tend to find it a difficult subject and it needs a little bit of airing and explanation from time to time. Some would say, are you saying that this is one of your key values then as a church, the, the sort of difference between man and female? To some extent, I suppose I would. Um, when we talk about values, 
What do we value as a church? I'm reminded of a, a phrase that someone told me a few years ago. A friend of mine who's a pastor said, a church's values aren't really the things that it puts on its website. A church's values are the things it's prepared to suffer for, maybe even to sometimes be misunderstood for. You might prefer not to suffer for it, but nevertheless, you value it. You think, well, it's worth it. It's worth the difficulty that arises because it's actually that important. And actually, through life, what we find is that we, we don't avoid pain. We don't avoid suffering at all. All of us will encounter it. We might get to choose which pain we have. We might get to choose which suffering we provoke and encounter. And by saying that this is the line we want to take as a church, yeah, we're definitely choosing a difficult path, but I believe we're also choosing a path that avoids other kinds of difficulty, which are just as serious and potentially more important in the long run. But let me give you a, a four-part answer, if I can, to the question, why do you value this? Why do you value this teaching about male and female equality and difference? First of all, because of Scripture. Because of Scripture. And uh, we've said already in this series of messages uh, that we, as our chief value, is that the first thing we said, Jesus leads the church. In terms of who calls the shots, who has final authority, we believe with all our heart that Jesus is very busy and involved with his church. And one of the ways in which he does lead his church is through the authority of his book, his word, his scripture. That's vital and we must be consistent to that and take it seriously. Uh, Sometimes... Uh, people will discuss this issue without any reference to Scripture. It, it simply becomes something that we, we decide on the basis of preference, on the, on the basis of emotional attachment, or on the basis of things that we've seen done that haven't been done well. We thought, well, they, that church didn't do this very well, so this teaching must be wrong. Uh, let me tell you, especially, especially first up, if you're somebody who's, who's here amongst us, looking in on Christianity, you're just you know, perhaps just visiting or a guest here, and I know there's always people amongst us who are in that category, and you are, we're just glad, always so glad that you feel welcome enough to be amongst us. Please, please, please feel free to do that. But let me say to you, I, I would say, decide first of all whether Jesus is risen from the dead. Decide first of all whether Jesus is actually alive. What I find often happens in people's evaluation of Christianity is if a certain teaching of the Bible seems offensive or regressive to them, they might say, well, Christianity teaches this, I don't like this, therefore Christianity isn't true. Which logically is a little bit strange, because what you're really saying is, I don't find this appealing, therefore Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Surely that's the wrong way around. The thing to decide first is whether Jesus rose, whether Jesus is actually alive, whether Jesus has any authority at all. Because if he doesn't have any authority, then the whole thing is a waste of time. It's completely pointless. And this book is nothing more than an interesting piece of ancient history at best. We shouldn't let it have any effect on our lives. But mind you, what are our lives? What's life all about? If, if there's no Jesus, maybe there's no God, maybe there's no meaning to the universe. And so... Certainly, we should start there. If Jesus is really alive, that's the first thing to get straight. But if he is alive, then he must have supreme authority. If he really rose from the dead and really leads his church, we must take him at his word. And he, he, has, he has given us every reason to be confident in the authority 
of his word. So by saying Jesus leads, we need to take that seriously. And that means it needs, it needs to influence the way we do discussion or even debate on this kind of an issue. You shouldn't be thinking, I wonder what the Emmanuel line on this is, or what, what's, what's the pastor going to say? You shouldn't really care what I think, what my preference is. If you're a follower of Jesus, ultimately, it should be, what does the Bible say? What does it actually teach? You, you shouldn't see my cultural preference as the main issue. It may have an effect on it, but then that means it should force us back to, what does the text really say? And my experience is that, sadly, far too many discussions on these kinds of issues of male-female distinctions tend to stay only in the arena of just preferences, opinions, and they don't get to really dealing with the, the clear teaching of God's word. I don't say all debates are like that, but I'm afraid too many are. And we mustn't be like that as a church because we're allowing God to speak and have authority through his word. So I want us to look at, at this in terms of what does the Bible actually say? Now, only, all I can do is a very, very swift survey of a few places. But, but as I read to you just a moment ago, we have in Genesis, in the very beginning, when the account of how humanity has begun, we, we have the man being created and, and given a responsibility. And we have the woman being created as his equal, clearly in Genesis 1, male and female in his image, utter equality of worth and dignity. And then in chapter 2, we have the story being told in a different way, from a different angle, and it shows a process, and it shows the man on his own at this stage, in the garden, being given his responsibility, and then the woman being created to come alongside him. To come alongside, literally to help, as a helper. And the word helper sounds a little demeaning in our culture, but don't, don't let that offend you. God is a helper. He's very happy with the name helper. So we shouldn't let it be too beneath us. But, but the concept of the man taking a lead and the woman in the marriage relationship coming alongside to help and to bring her wisdom and her gifts in a complementary way is extremely important. This is, a, this is a, uh, a thing that we see right from the very first stages. It's kind of borne out as we go through the Bible. And then we get, I'm rushing extremely fast, to the, the New Testament where you see Jesus and the way that he's consistent, it seems, with this. Jesus comes in a way surprising in the way he honors and liberates women. When you, you look at the cultures of his time, uh, Jesus' manner with women and Jesus' way in which he, he treats with dignity and encourages the way that, for example, just as a top of my head example, women are the first people to announce the resurrections. Women coming from the, the, the empty tomb to announce to the men that Jesus is raised. There are moments throughout the New Testament, continually also, where that sort of thing happens. There are those clear examples of, of women playing extremely important roles in the ongoing unfolding of the story. And uh, that goes through in the book of Acts. You see uh, many examples, too many to list right now, of exactly that kind of thing continuing. But at the same time, there's a certain kind of responsibility in leadership that seems to be limited to guys. And that's consistent, again, if you thread back to Genesis chapter 3. When the man and the woman both fall 
in the garden. It's actually the woman, Eve, who takes the fruit of the tree first and leads her husband into that act of disobedience. But when God comes to confront them, he calls the man. He says, Adam. He calls the man to account for something that they both did. In fact, if anything, the woman took the lead in it. But the man is responsible. The man carries a certain kind of authority and responsibility in this situation. And you get into the New Testament, like I say, you see men and women working together in good ways, mostly, sometimes in bad ways. But you also see uh, when Jesus chooses his apostles, he chooses 12 guys. And that continues throughout the New Testament. When it talks about the choosing of elders in a local church, it's men that are being asked to do that. When you get to uh, 1 Timothy 3, for example, in the first few verses, it seems that the qualification for eldership has a lot to do with fathering, literally. How, how does the guy father? If he can't father his house, he can't father the church, is the, is the implication. There's a link between this uniquely male uh, calling and responsibility of fatherhood and the way in which local churches uh, need to be uh, governed. And so you see this kind of rolling out. Then you see places, and I will turn to this because uh, it's such an important passage. Ephesians chapter 5, which talks about everybody in the church submitting to one another. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. When Jesus is amongst his church, one of the results will be a genuine desire to prefer one another, to not lord it over each other, to not dominate selfishly, but to put others first. That's a healthy church. That's a healthy family. That's a healthy marriage. As Paul's going to go on to say in verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Note that he says submit to your own husbands. He does not say women submit to men. Just to put some of you at ease immediately. <laughs> this is very limited in terms of how it's directly worked out. Wives submit to husbands, not women submit to men. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, verse 25, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Quoting there from Genesis one, uh, 2, you may remember. Uh, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, people will say, therefore, doesn't it say in, in the earlier verse, in verse 21, mutual submission, submit to one another. So we submit to one another, right? So why, why should wives just submit to their husbands in that, in that following verse there? And you'd be right, it does teach submitting to one another. That's the whole culture of the passage, that's the flavour of it. But notice the way in which it's worked out in marriage. How does a husband submit to his wife? He actually submits to her by using his strength, using his masculine authority, if you like, masculine strength, for her. 
He, he uses what he has as a man to provide, to protect the instinct that a man will tend to have through his, his maleness, his masculinity, to, to provide, to protect, and to, to lay his life down for his wife, if needs be. And on a, in a sense, on a daily basis, to lay his life down for his wife. That's how he is to exercise his strength. He's not to exercise his strength on her. He's to exercise his strength for her. That's the teaching of the Bible. That's how he submits. He lays it, that's how Christ submitted. He laid his life, his strength, his authority, his majesty down for his bride, for the church. That's the teaching consistently of the Bible from cover to cover. And there's an echo of that in the local church. And so elders are called to be men, to be authority, to have, to have strength, to sometimes have great courage, to guide the church, to govern the church, sometimes to guard the church. It requires men to be masculine. It's good for a church to be led by such things. It's healthy, not because it means the men get to boss women around. Far from it. It's in fact so that the, the whole culture of the church is one where people are safe and can flourish because the men are using their God-given strength for the blessing, for the blessing and the flourishing of the whole body. And that ought to follow. If it doesn't follow, something is amiss. And so Genesis teaches this positive vision. But it also teaches, sadly, the negative next stage. In Genesis 3, we get the account of the fall, man and woman together disobeying God. And the result of it is they turn on each other. They begin to resent each other. They begin to blame each other. God even says in Genesis chapter 3 that there will now be a twisted relationship between men and women. Throughout history, that has been borne out. And generally, it has to be said, and this is where feminists are completely right, the, the, the way it's worked is, is generally abusive oppression of women. That's, that's a very typical story through most cultures in human history, and some of it in every culture of human history. That's definitely a target of God's desire for justice. God predicts that that will tend to happen in Genesis chapter 3 as a result of not his creation, but our destruction, our wiping of creation, our attack on his order, our distortion of his order results in the kind of horror that we know too much about in all kinds of ways. Some of the most obvious, brutal, oppressive ways in different parts of the world, some of them all too close to home, in the way, you know, things that get huge amounts of media, te media attention, uh, scandals of abuse, sex abuse, and, and all the sort of Hollywood things that have come out, and various things in, in Westminster and so on. These are versions, it would seem, of this kind of maleness being exerted in a distorted way. And so things like the Me Too campaign and, and Time's Up and various things that get a lot of media attention, it seems to me that there's, there's ways in which people respond. And very often the response of anger and frustration could be quite legitimate because men have been abusive and still are. And that will happen in, in all kinds of nice Western ways. It will also happen in some appalling Western ways that we keep very quiet about the way that women are trafficked, the way that women are brought into uh, pornographic studios and told that this is going to make your dreams come true and then their lives are wrecked along with their families. 
And that happens to multiple families and multiple cultures, and that happens in places like, yeah, England. So this isn't just far away, but of course there are other places far away. There are places in the world where oppression of women is, is brutal and is systemic. And where Christians find themselves in those situations, part of our responsibility to champion the equality of male and female should be to look for ways to seek justice. A friend of ours was getting to know and connect with some uh, Muslim leaders in Afghanistan, extraordinarily. Traveled into Afghanistan, made friends with some imams, and, and, and did an amazing job of helping them to know, understand the gospel. Told them he wanted to baptize them. You know, he's, he's a very bold evangelist with these imams. But they, they struck up a friendship. He said, I'd like to help you to establish some schools. He realized a terrible need for education in the area where they were. They said, please do. We would love to see some schools established. He said, we could uh, arrange the funding. We could arrange the staffing. We could help to establish tremendous social change through education. How can we do that? And, and they offered all kinds of uh, open doors for this to happen. He said, I insist, though, in every school it will be education for male and female, for boys and girls. I insist on it. Otherwise, we're not doing it. It's a tremendous example of how this is how uh, this it reflects a huge part of our responsibility. But it's concurrent with our calling as well to remind the culture of the difference. And this is what I want to touch on really quickly as a second point. Why do we value this? Well, we value it because of scripture. We also value it because of the culture. We care about our culture. Now, when I say our culture, I'm talking, forgive me if this isn't true of you. I'm talking about Western Brightonian culture, for sure. Culture of the cities that we saw on the video just now, for example, Berlin, Amsterdam, Ottawa, where maleness and femaleness are massively being eroded as we speak. That's the, that is the headlong pursuit of our culture at the moment. A huge erosion of the distinction, a blurring, massive blurring of edges between the two. And then, uh, as a result of that, shaming, kind of a following on from that, shaming of people who still feel that their maleness or their femaleness is part of their identity and their destiny. And that's not an exaggeration. Where, where people say, no, I think the fact that I was made a man is important. I, I feel the fact I was created a woman is important important. It's a given identity. I may not have chosen it, but it's a given identity, and I will, I will yield to it. I will commit to it. That's controversial, to say the least. And if you speak up like that, you will often be shamed in spectacular ways or in very gentle ways. Full-time mothers in our culture, for example, will often feel tempted to be ashamed of themselves because they, they are given a narrative by the culture which says, what, why are you letting your sisters down and not getting into the workforce where real life happens? Because what you're doing at home is not important. Now listen, friends, I believe that is utterly wrong. I believe it's evil. And I believe it robs women of their identity. It robs women of a sense of calling and destiny. And it shouldn't be allowed into our hearts. We shouldn't receive it. And we should genuinely feel that there's a responsibility to fight for our culture and where men don't know where they fit often. Men who, who think, well, the fact that I'm a man, 
what's that got to do with anything? Because the culture is determined, it seems, to blur any distinction. Masculinity, in some contexts, is never used as a word, as a noun, without the preceding adjective toxic. Toxic masculinity. And so young men grow up in a culture which seems to sneer at them because they're men. And again, this is not an exaggeration. The, the highest cause of death amongst men under 45 in this nation is suicide. The highest cause of death. And, and, and it speaks, it reflects a mentality that creeps in on a, on a kind of macro level where men simply don't understand themselves, they don't know where they belong, they don't really feel welcome to, to use their, their talents, they don't know if they have any. They don't really know if there's any particular relevance to them in our context. In 1972, one in 14 households were fatherless in the UK. Uh, now it would be one in four. And it, again, this re reflects a drift of men from the place where they're needed, where there's a calling to father, to cherish, to raise, to establish, to discipline, to teach, to train children. And the, the, the sense in which men don't know that this is a, a high, glorious calling and something that's distinct to them as fathers. Only fathers can be fathers, and only mothers can be mothers. The way that that gets, that gets denied just routinely in our, in our world, I think it yields horrible, horrible harvests culturally, and will continue to do so. It will get worse, I strongly and grievously believe. 236 local authorities in England and Wales in which more than 50% of the families don't have fathers, more than 50%. That's, that's new, that's one generation's change, that is new. You cannot do that to society without reaping a whirlwind. It will happen. We've seen bits of it with things like the London riots of a few years ago. I believe we've only seen little bits of it. It's significant, friends. Fathers are not involved. There, there's no honor given to fatherhood. Mothers are not honored as mothers. The state increasingly takes over from the role of the family that God ordained on the first page of the Bible as this cherished means of creating stable, loving society. And it's being robbed as we speak. And it's time for us as believers to say, no, no we've got a culture to protect. We've got a, a glorious calling to deliver. And here's the thing, friends. If the church doesn't do it, and the church generally doesn't, Generally, the church is very weak on this stuff, very frightened of offending the elites, very frightened of offending the kind of people that I live around, the people that I love in this city who have very different opinions very often. And I do love them. And I don't like being disagreed with horribly. I don't like being <coughs> slandered. I don't like it. But friends, in the end, it's important. So we've got to lovingly say, no, we believe there's a different way. We believe it with all our heart. It's a heart thing. There's something right about men being men. There's something right about fathers being fathers. Something right about mothers being free to be mothers. It's a healthy healing that needs to be brought to bear. And, and the fact of the matter, like I was saying, if the church doesn't do this, others will, but they won't do it Christ-like. Because you can't hide biology. You can't squash it under the rug forever. Masculinity will out. 
but it won't out in a Christ-like way. There are certain men in, 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 in our world and certain men in this country who are not interested in being metrosexual, and they never will be. They just, they, they, in a sense, they have too much common sense for it. But they're not tethered to Christ. There's no meekness. There's just arrogance and assertion and authoritarianism. And that will find its way, whether it's through jihadis, whether it's through young men thinking, well, this is my destiny. I'm going to be, I'm going to be extremist. I'm going to be aggressive. I'm going to be violent because this is my male destiny. Or it will be men from a more uh, Western context who react against that. Which is why movements like the alt-right, mostly in America, but not just in America, are getting traction. Because men, they haven't been honoured by the culture, but they do get honoured by extremists on the internet. So we, we can't just squash this under the surface. We've got to realise it will have its way. We need to help men to find a Christ-like way of being men. And this is so huge for us. I remember standing outside a football stadium years ago and just watching men coming out after a match in their thousands, just standing there thinking, this is the harvest the church has not seen for generations. We haven't seen men come to Christ. We haven't seen men loving Christ, serving families, loving society, seeing how they can lay their lives down for, for their wives, for their children. We don't see this. So we see men confused and lost. We need to see a change. And there's so much that could be said. But let me move on finally to my last points. We believe this is a value because it's scriptural, because we care about the culture. Also, because it's good. That may sound the strangest thing I've said. Because it's good. Generally, my experience of dealing with the whole issue of male-female leadership in church and family, it, it gets it, it, people tend to see two options. Either we hate it and so we reject it, and say, well, I don't believe those verses are in the Bible, or we interpret them in a slightly strange way, but just to try and get rid of them. That's the way we tend to deal with it. Or we say, all right, it's in the Bible. Okay. Those are the two options. We kind of hate it and reject it, or we reluctantly, resentfully acquiesce. Because, all right, then. Can I suggest to you that might not be the best? Remember what it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. It talks about us being able to prove his good, perfect, pleasing will. Good, perfect, pleasing. Do you know God's will for you is pleasing? It's pleasing. It's not just right. Isn't that how we so often see God's, God's limitations on our lives? I want you to do this. Oh, I knew you hated me. Isn't that how we see him? Is that how you see God? That's been our problem from the beginning, right? You will not eat the fruit of that tree. Oh! There's these billions of other trees. I only really want the one you're not letting me have. And I don't like you as a result. And I don't trust you. You've got it in for me. But his will, my friend, is good. It's perfect. And it's pleasing. Actually pleasing. You know, there's something we miss when we talk about male-female relationships in the family and in the church. We might miss the fact that it can be beautiful and is meant to be. It's meant to result in deep satisfaction, in flourishing, where men feel honored as men. And women feel cherished, 
cared for and believe they can flourish as women. And if that isn't the culture of a church, which it isn't in any church to 100%, it should always be something we push for. In this church, we're complementarians, or at least we as elders are complementarians. If that doesn't mean that we are helping women to flourish in their calling, it's not quite right. It's not quite the right kind of complementarianism. And we need to believe for, for the best in the way this is worked out. You might say, well, what, do I have to be a complementarian to be part of this church? Maybe you're wondering about membership. Do I have to sign up exactly to this? Well, there are lots of things that people in this church might disagree with the teaching on occasionally, but there's a way to do disagreement. See, it's interesting. You might be surprised by the Bible. The Bible is not against disagreement in the church on certain matters. The Bible is against divisiveness in the church. That's clear. Where, where Paul speaks to Titus and says, deal with this, deal with that, he doesn't say, deal with people who have a different opinion on this issue. He says, deal with divisive people. So you know, teaching on various issues, I think of something like alcohol, for example. In this church, we teach that, that we're very free under, under grace and in Christ to enjoy God's gifts, which would include beer and wine and so on. That's, that's fine. Enjoy the blessings that God gives. For some of you in this church, in your conscience, you feel, I just can't do that. I cannot do that. I don't think that's right. Now, we're not going to sit around your table at Sunday lunch and force you. But neither should you be thinking, I'm going to force the elders to change their minds on this. Paul teaches in places like Romans 14, the way to deal with this is with love. Say, so look, ultimately we keep the unity of the Spirit and we love one another. And, and we might have a disagreement about an issue, but we're going to choose to, to handle that disagreement lovingly, honoringly, and get behind, sure, the vision of the church. You know, we, we, there's bigger fish to fry than whether I get all my opinions ticked off. And so we've got to handle that well. Some of you might think, well, I don't know if I line up with this. I would say to you two things. I would say, bless you. That's, I'm well done for being honest. Well done. Second, I would say to you, please do consider why you disagree with it. Consider, look at it. Keep looking at the Bible. Keep looking at Scripture. I'm not saying you never have. I'm just saying keep doing it. Keep doing it thoughtfully, carefully, Honorably, keep doing it with a good conscience. Look at it carefully. What does it really say? What does that really mean? How does that really apply? Yeah, let's, let's make sure that we do that as best we possibly can, and let's not respond to caricatures. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes in these controversies, caricature rules the day. Yeah, I don't like this kind of teaching because you've got a kind of monster in your head of what this teaching looks like. But it doesn't necessarily look like that. And we can keep peeling back, as it were, the onion. Look, look carefully at Scripture. You might find, no, this isn't what I thought it was. This is, this is way more freeing, way more glorious than I thought it was. Liberty is on offer in the gospel. Liberation in Christ for men and for women. Genuine freedom and liberty. The way that liberty gets worked out is going to be with us experiencing limitations from time to time. Isn't that obvious? There are limitations on women. Yes, there are. There are limitations on men too. Oh, yeah. There are demands on women. Man, there are demands on men too. Did you read Ephesians 5? Wives, wives, you see to it, you respect your husband, submit to your husband. That's limiting. That's demanding, isn't it? 
Could be. It could be. I'm not lying. It could be that there are times in a wife's life where it's like, oh, I'm going to follow my husband. Right. I, I would prefer not to in this situation. But, okay, in this situation, I, I think I can see what I need to do. Do you know what? The demand on the husband, you lay your life down for your wife. What does he mean? Yeah, you're Christ. She's the church. What does that suggest? You get crucified. That's what it suggests. Demanding? Pretty much. Pretty much. The gospel makes demands, but it liberates. We have a cross and an empty tomb. And this is my final point. We believe in this because it's scriptural, because we care about the culture, because it's good, and because it shows us Jesus. The whole story the book teaches is the story of a heroic groom, a heroic husband who came to rescue a bride. He leads his bride for sure. How does he lead his bride? By dying for her. By laying his life down for her. And if we object to, to the teaching of the Bible, we're objecting to the gospel. Jesus can help you. You might say, well, who are you to tell me, to put limits on me? Who is this God? And I understand that instinct. I feel it very often. Who, who is this God to tell me what I'm supposed to do with my... Oh, it's such a painful thing sometimes when the Bible puts constraints on a life. We do react like that. Who are you to tell me? Well, I'll tell you who he is. He's, he's the one on the cross. He's that one. He's that one with the scars. He's that one who knew about constraints. This is so constraining. Jesus was constrained, chained, nailed. Wounded, beaten up. Jesus knows what it's like to be obedient. Not my will, but yours. But the Bible says God has appointed him. God has raised him up. God has exalted him to the highest place, given him a name above every name. My friend, if the time of your life that you're in, whatever it was to do with marriage or nothing to do with anything I've said today already, you may be thinking this whole sermon is a waste of my time. Nothing to do with me whatsoever. I already completely disagree or I completely agree. Let me tell you this, whoever you are, this is vital for you. Whatever, whatever you're going through in your life, whatever restraint and limitation God has put on your life, this is the God who leads by example through cross to resurrection. The end of the story is liberty, is freedom. There is a future coming where there'll be no marriage. Jesus said so. There'll be no giving in marriage, no, no husband and wifing. It'll be over, over completely. This, this passing age, we get to model something. We're showing, we're a symbol of something that's glory. In eternity, there's one husband, one bride. And we're all rescued by the husband who laid his life down. So we can be, I think, confident to see this in a different light in a different perspective. As Paul says in Ephesians 5, verse 23, this is a great mystery, but it's about Christ and the church. That's it. It's about Christ and the church. Don't let it be re re reduced to, well, the men are allowed to do this, the women are allowed to do that, and it's all a bit legalistic, and missing the point. It's about Christ and the church. Something massive is involved. Let's just pray. We're going to take communion. We must take communion. We must. We've got to come to the cross and see everything in that light. Partly because for some of us it's a painful thing and we need to just trust that Jesus is for us. And for others it's more like, yeah, 
I don't know if I understand it or even agree, but I'm still loving Jesus as part of this church, and we'll work it out together. So communion becomes very important, doesn't it, at times like that? Let's just pray. Father, thank you for this grace of bread and wine given to us to take us to you, and we pray you'd help us to enjoy it as your people together now. In Jesus' name, amen.